Hello, greetings. I'm Jeff Carls, Executive Director of the Institute on Religious Life, and this is our new podcast series called Ever Ancient, Ever New. We have a wonderful Affiliate in Focus episode today with a special guest on the podcast. Mother Teresa Christie is the Reverend Mother of the Marian Sisters of Santa Rosa, California. The Marian Sisters of Santa Rosa, California were founded in 2012 and currently have 24 members. Mother Therese Christie, welcome to the program, and thank you for being a guest on our podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Good. Well, before we get started with a series of questions that we'd like to talk to you about, would you be willing to lead us in a prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Direct, we beseech thee, O Lord, our actions by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that every prayer and work of ours may begin always from thee, and through thee be happily ended. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Mother, for a beautiful prayer. Intercede for us, dear Blessed Mother, as we begin this podcast. I guess a good place to start would be to ask you, uh, Mother, about your vocation story, how you heard God's call and how you responded to that call to a religious vocation. Well, I am the sixth of 10 children, uh, and I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, Just just after the changes of the Second Vatican Council, I started uh, elementary school. And by that time, the sisters were gone. (laughs) There were no sisters in the area to get to know. And so I grew up with just uh, reading books and seeing movies with sisters in it from time to time, but could never see myself in that environment or in that vocation since it wasn't something very tangible, not on my radar at the time. But as I got older, I went to a Catholic high school that actually did have sisters. And to my pleasant surprise, the sisters weren't older women frustrated in love who couldn't find someone to marry, so they all moved in together. (laughs) I um, found that they were the most warm, sensible, and caring human beings that I'd ever met. But still, in my family, I was the most unlikely to follow a religious vocation, and my seven brothers let me know that (laughs) all the time. So, But, you know, the uh, a call to religious life is truly an invitation from our Lord, and it is an initiative himself rather than our initiative. So there is in each person's vocation, a unique story of that call. And in my case, I was about 16 or 17 years old, and I was attending Sunday Mass. I had just started my first job. So I had some cash in my pocket that I myself had earned. And I was very proud of myself because for the first time, I was going to contribute of my substance during the operatory in the little wicker basket that comes down, you know, gets passed down the the row. And uh, as the basket was coming, I had this moment where I looked up above the altar and there's a beautiful crucifix there. And I had this inspiration and thought that our Lord there on the cross gave me everything, every last ounce of his blood, all of his love. And here I was giving him a few dollars. (laughs) And so as the basket was coming, I had this interior impulse to throw myself in spiritually into the basket and give him the whole thing. And of course, I didn't act on that. But I put my few dollars in there and 
the gracious God accepted that as he always did. But that was the first movement within my heart where I thought, what was that? <laughs> that did not come from me. And what is what is God asking? So I was very frightened of it and did not follow that inspiration until later in the year, I was at a retreat with some of my peers. And the instructor at the retreat was giving a talk on vocations in general. And he said, you know, if you're called to the married state, your vocation is like a tree and God will come and every season and ask to take from your tree. And that'll be your time, your talent, your treasure, maybe even your children. And you will give this to him willingly and lovingly, but you're still the owner of the tree. And he said, if you are called to religious life, or in the case of a young man, to the holy priesthood, you're going to give God the whole tree, roots and all. And he will take it and plant it where he wants, and it becomes his. And he looked out at, at us in the audience, and he said, and some of you have the ability to give him the whole tree. And I was think, sitting there thinking, oh, no. I think I'm able to give him the whole tree. <laughs> and but after that was a series of meetings with sisters and you know dealing with the questions like I I think I would make a good life partner and I love children so does that mean I I'm not called to religious life and no sister said that all the qualities that make a good mother and spouse make a good religious it's just a matter of the call and that you will have children and those children will be spiritual children that you and Jesus will have together, you know, in the spiritual life, bringing them to greater spiritual life. And that thought very much comforted me. But I think that the grace to follow the call came during adoration and it was Holy Thursday night. And I was reflecting on a book, I believe it's called The Way of Divine Love, in which our Lord revealed some of his passion to a, a Spanish nun in the early 1920s or something. But in the particular revelation, he was telling her that when he was between the agony in the garden and standing before Pilate, he was mocked and then placed in that prison in the ground was a deep hole that you couldn't climb out of. And that he had felt true human loneliness in that prison. And at that moment, wanted very much to have souls join him in the redemptive suffering and giving their life for souls. And at that moment, I looked up at the Blessed Sacrament and said, I will. <laughs> and that I think that moment, I received the courage to follow the invitation. So I think both things need to be considered is the invitation and then the courage and ability to follow it, which both come from God's grace. Well, how did you act on that then, sister, concretely? What did, you, what did you do from there once you gave your yes and that was clear to you? How did you follow through? Well, I discerned a, a vocation with the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen, which were the sisters that had taught me in high school. So just after high school, I, with their permission and you know, going through the application process, I was received there. So all the way from there to now you are Reverend Mother Teresa Christie. What a journey, because you actually have gone on to found a community of religious sisters. How did you get to the point from your yes and, and becoming a sister to now hearing God call you to start a community? I don't want to say of your own because it's God's community, but you said yes to founding a community. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I certainly had no ambition to start a community of religious sisters, but once again, our Lord called me to this, 
And it all began after I entered my original community, the Congregation of Mary Immaculate Queen. I was very happily a religious there for many years. And it was a traditional Catholic community, so very much in love with the liturgical traditions prior to the Second Vatican Council, to the Baltimore Catechism. We had schools and beautiful apostolates and a beautiful community life. Uh, However, over the years, the community more and more started to separate from Rome. And after my final profession, it became a very distinctive, deliberative position that the community held called Sede Vacantes, which is uh, regarding the seat of Peter as vacant due to uh, what they claimed was heresy coming from the Holy Fathers from, I think, Paul VI on. And so you can see how difficult that position was in to be, you know, well-established in your religious life, caring for souls who are in, you know, good faith. And, but over the years realizing to be Catholic, I need to be with Peter. So a number of our sisters began to communicate with our local bishop in uh, the Spokane Diocese. And through a series of communication and so forth, we did move into full communion with the church, but it did mean we had to leave our beloved community. And we are so grateful for the opportunity to come into full communion. But it was also a very, as you can imagine, almost a traumatic step in the sense of just uh, departing from one's vocation so quickly. But embracing the church and the wisdom of the church, the wisdom of the bishop that was working with us, gave us the opportunity to continue living our vowed life as we were in transition. So we set up a temporary community of religious sisters for the sake of discernment and study so that we wouldn't make any decisions for our lives too quickly and would have time to pray and learn and study. So I was with that transitional community for four years, during which time I had the opportunity to start working in Catholic schools and parishes to see how did the beautiful traditions I came from how would they best serve the church now? So I worked in diocesan elementary schools. I was going to college, taking college classes at the time, having some work and uh, fellowship with the seminarians there in uh, the Spokane Diocese. And over that period of four years, uh, it became clear that God was had a specific call that included having the best of what I had come from in traditions yet being present to the church where she was, both liturgically, but also promoting a culture of an integrated faith that is open to all who seek God and want to experience his love in every aspect of their lives. This vision was recognized by the Bishop of Spokane, who was working with us at the time, and he responded to that by offering to contact bishops for myself and my fellow foundress, Mother Marie Delords, and to find a diocese that was resonating with this charism, with this vision of a religious community. And say, as a result of much prayer and um, consideration, we were introduced to Bishop Robert Basha, who was just starting as the Bishop of Santa Rosa. And he immediately embraced the vision and welcomed us in. And we started with two sisters, and he rented us a little house, and we started living, you know, what we thought God was calling us to. And so the rest is history. (laughs) Mother, that's a fascinating story. And 
as you know, we're good friends with Bishop Vasha. He served as the board president for the IRL and then graciously brought all of you to sing for our first gala, which was a huge treat. And so we're deeply grateful to Bishop Vasha for his support for your community and for the Institute on Religious Life and for religious life in general. He's just got such a heart for religious life and seems to embrace it and understand it so well. So we're thankful that you would share that story with us and for Bishop Vasha's role in helping get your community started. Mother, the next thing I'd like to ask you about is is the Marian Sisters of Santa Rosa's habit is so beautiful and striking with the blue and the white colors. They're just almost elegant, if you would, but they're really striking. Can you tell us what the symbolism is behind the blue and the white habits? Of course, every community that designs a habit hopes that it will proclaim a sense of their spirituality and their vision, and also that it's somewhat practical in the call that Pius XII made back in the day when he was asking sisters to reconsider the design of their habits, that it would be becoming, it would profess our life, but at the same time be easy to launder, easy to move about in. Um, In our case, the main inspiration was our Blessed Mother and our baptismal promises. So our tunic or our foundational piece is white. And not only does that proclaim our baptismal consecration, but it also reminds us that in all of our ladies, almost all of our ladies approved apparitions, she appeared in white in that kind of that tunic. And so we thought that would be a perfect base. On top of that, we have the blue scapular. The scapular is the fabric or the piece of clothing that falls from the scapula, from the shoulders, and indicates uh, labor. It was used in olden times as a part of the garment that would indicate that you were a laborer. And so many communities will have the scapular. And ours is of blue in honor of our Blessed Mother. We wear the white cowl of over our heart to remind us of the tabernacle where Jesus dwells within us. And white is typically used for virgins to profess purity. And so there are many reminders of our faith in the habit itself. The veil of the dark blue that matches the habit also falls over our shoulders in a more traditional fashion than maybe the more contemporary way of pinning it behind the neck. So that way we were able to capture the best of tradition along with having a practical habit that we could teach in and drive in and (laughs) serve the Lord in many ways. That's beautiful to have all of that symbolism behind it, but they're also beautiful and attractive and appealing so that it sets you apart. And when you go out in public or when you are outside of the uh, convent of the monastery, you are a symbol and a sign for other people. And whether they understand it or not, they know that you're set apart because of the habit. So thank you for explaining. We really appreciate the symbolism. Mother, what goes into the process of founding a religious community and what led you and your fellow sisters to actually begin? Well, any community must begin with the recognition of the church and the opportunity to grow, but under the authority of the bishop and of the church. And in our case, as in many cases of new communities, the bishop began us so to speak, odd experimentum. There's a time where the 
members of the community just get to know the bishop that they're working with. And with the charism that does not come across uh, or doesn't come to us around a meeting table, it comes from, from God. You know, it's an inspiration and a vision from God. It needs to be tested. And from what I understand in some research and also talking to Bishop Basha, there's something that the bishop will look for in these first beginning months and years of a religious community. And he indicated five of them. And the first is that there is a need in the church, or at least in that locale, for this particular charism, that it attracts vocations, that there is a response of joy from the faithful. Not that everybody trusts, you know, some people kind of look with a suspicious eye at a new community, like, what is this all about? But in general, there's almost a spontaneous response from the Holy Spirit within the hearts of the faithful who begin to embrace this vision as well and and all that it promises for them. Another indication is this community financially stable. Are they able to receive the donations or work to gain um, honest substance to support themselves? And finally, does the charism bring forth unity? Does it bring the faithful together? And it was very a very beautiful experience to see through the years these different elements come and fall into place, not from personal ingenuity, not because you know I'm a good administrator or my fellow founders, but because uh, God was guiding us and placing the, the relationships and the opportunities in our way. I would tell the sisters, let's ask our Lord to bring forth the charism for us, to request it from us in the different needs that surround us. And it just happened almost seamlessly in such a way that it is, you can tell it's not of human ordinance at all. So that once a bishop will see that in odd experimentum, just as that relationship is beginning, he will move the community canonically to a next status, which is the private association of the faithful, where it's somewhat recognized, still kind of a gentle, not completely out there. And that's usually just a few years. And then he will move the community to a public association of the faithful, which we are as of, I believe, uh, 2018, which means that the community can teach in the name of the church. You actually have kind of the full status of a religious community just waiting for those years or even decades where your membership grows to such a degree that you can be established as a diocesan institute. But definitely that puts you on the track to be a a stable foundation for many years to come. Thank you, Mother. And what would you say was probably the most significant obstacle that you encountered in the process? I think the obstacles, first of all, were housing because we didn't know how large we would be. Just like any couple that comes together maybe doesn't know (laughs) uh, how large the family God intends, you know, from them. And so you don't want to start out too large, but also not too small. So we have moved four times in the last 12 years in order to accommodate the number of vocations that we received. I'm happy to say that our last convent purchase, which was uh, we're, we're moving into three years ago, was the old Ursuline convent in our diocese, which is laid out for the life. You know, it wasn't trying to make a residence or an apartment building or something like that into a religious community. This 
has a large space for a chapel. It has a number of cells for our sisters so that not only to accommodate the numbers that we have now, but to give us room for growth. So that was a great blessing, but it was also an an obstacle. It took a lot of discernment. When do we move? When do we start looking for new property? I think another uh, obstacle or, or challenge would be testing the number of requests you receive for apostolate against the charism, because every community needs to make sure that in their apostolate, which is the overflow of their contemplative life, that that apostolate is actually an expression of the charism. And so that was both a challenge, but also a joy to be able to affirm that over and over again. And then finally, I would say the many needs formation-wise in one house. When, you, when you're a newer community, you've got your postulants and your novices in with your junior professed, in with your final professed, and each stage of religious life has unique needs and unique attention needed, and even in a unique atmosphere. As you can imagine, the atmosphere of a novitiate is different than the atmosphere of a final professed sister. So making sure that those accommodations within the same household are being made has been a challenge, but uh, definitely with the help of the sisters, it's been able to do a pretty decent job, I think. Well, as a father of 10 children, I can certainly identify with you don't start a family of 10 all at one time. You have the organic growth process that happens naturally, which is wonderful with the olders knowing what mom and dad's expectations are and and passing those on down to the younger ones. With you, you're all coming together from different backgrounds and different areas and whatever the case be. So I can certainly understand why you would find some of those kind of obstacles or some challenges Part of the Sisters of Santa Rosa's mission statement is to seek to magnify Jesus Christ by communicating the beauty, goodness, and truth of the Catholic faith in a spirit of joyful evangelization through living the fullness of the church's liturgical life. Can you tell us more on how participating in Mass through both the ordinary and extraordinary forms of the Roman Rite has benefited your community? Yes. So there are kind of two pillars there that you see of the expression of our charism. One is to communicate the beauty, goodness, and truth of our faith in a spirit of joyful evangelization. Definitely that can be done through the liturgy, but you will see our sisters communicating the faith in the classroom, catechetical programs, RCIA, you name it. And then the other element that is very dear and expressive of our charism is anything we can do to contribute to the reverent worship of God and to extend that and share that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So our liturgical expression is, first of all, in service through prayer and sacrifice for priests, that spiritual motherhood. So it starts from a very hidden but very heartfelt core. From there, all of our sisters are trained as sacristans, and we have workshops that we share with the laity and even with seminarians on the care of the sacred vessels, the care of the sacristy, but not just the care of the altar and the, the area, the spirituality of it, the dignity of it, the nobility of that service to the altar that so many of our, our lay brothers and sisters do, but don't have a lot of training in. So that's a work. Also music ministry, where the sisters devote themselves to singing or participating in the music that the church desires for the liturgy, not just what she lovingly puts up with, you know, and to share that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and teaching the young children how to serve at the altar, the different liturgical expressions. So you can see that this can be done both in the traditional Mass, the service, and in the ordinary form of the Mass. So the sisters, it's kind of seamless for us. We're not, you know, polemic in any way in our service. It's just where does God ask us to serve in this way? And then we find those opportunities and do that. So the sisters who are teaching in school are teaching the children how to serve, how to work in the sacristy, benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, you know, all of that is part of the elements of our service to the altar, so to speak. It's such a wonderful blessing and and so much needed because when the religious communities were flourishing prior to the Second Vatican Council and we had religious staffing most of our Catholic schools and dioceses and so on, that has been lost. And to hear your explanation of how you're teaching the young, the children, reverence and how to appreciate the sacredness of Holy Mass. What a contribution to our culture and much needed. It's very exciting because the sisters, I watch them teaching in the elementary school and they teach the children not just how to make a genuflection, but why. And you can see that growth of faith in the little ones. And then in the high school where our sisters are teaching, uh, one of my sisters came home and she's so excited because she's teaching her ninth graders how to sing the O Salutaris and Tantum Ergo for their monthly adoration time. And, And it's just very beautiful to see what otherwise wouldn't be passed on. I see my sisters passing on. So, you know, all that I thought of in the vision that our Lord had given for this community is being expressed through these beautiful vocations and generosity of our sisters, just beyond what I what I can imagine. What a blessing for our church, you know, at large. Mother, the Marian Sisters of Santa Rosa have been quickly growing and attracting many vocations in the almost 12 years since its founding. What is some advice you can give to other orders who are struggling perhaps to attract vocations or struggling to maintain or grow their orders? Any advice that you would give? You know, to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send laborers into his harvest through their particular charism, because the church needs all of us. We're all just such a small piece of of something much bigger than, than each of us. And I think to believe in their charism and their spirituality has a contribution to ask our Lord every day. I know we do as part of our intercessions for the hour of Vespers. We ask God to send us holy vocations to our community. We ask that together every day. Also, I found that in our circumstances, having small, more intimate come and see experiences seems to have, even though it's fewer numbers at a time, seems to have a greater impact on the individual in their discernment. So we take a lot of time to really screen those who we have visit that we we see that there's a potential there. And then we really give them an experience of the life. We have them meet the sisters and then the sisters will reflect back to me and to our vocations directors how they feel. So it's kind of an all community participation in discernment, both praying for those who visit us, but also everyone participates in the visit in some way. And I think if communities did that, it helps that individual discern better, but also helps them feel part of the community, you know, earlier on. Would you have any advice for those who are listening to this podcast who might be discerning 
a religious vocation, what advice would you give them? I would say that the call to religious life is an invitation of our Lord. It doesn't come from us. However, God has placed within our hearts certain desires. And if you've ever seen some of those scientific videos, documentaries on how lightning works, <laughs> and you see the lightning comes down from the sky, but then there's electricity coming up from the earth and they meet. Well, it's kind of like that, like our Lord is asking, but he's already placed in your heart a desire to give him all and let those two desires meet. But let our Lord do the leading and do not doubt him. Do not wait too long. Do not do what our dear bishop says is the vocation of perpetual discernment. <laughs> you just you know, drop those nets and, and go. In our scriptural tradition as Catholics, we can see that whenever someone is asked to do something great, Abraham, you know, blessed mother, there's a little element of the unknown there. And that requires trust and faith. And that is what our Lord is asking for. And that does not come easily to us in our society due to our instant information, our ability to have a lot of information before making a decision. The call to religious life, the call to follow Christ is not contemporary, <laughs> you know, in the sense of modern technology. Just look to the scriptures and read about those who followed Christ and do it that way. <laughs> and he will reward you. I don't regret a moment of my 42 years. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Mother, thank you so much for taking the time to enlighten all of our listeners. I certainly think that anyone who hears this podcast will have a much deeper understanding of religious life, how it's such a great gift from God for all of us. And on behalf of the Institute of Religious Life, I want to thank you and assure you and the community of our prayers that God will continue to bless you as he has and that the Blessed Mother will continue to intercede for you as she has because you really are a great gift to all of us. So thank you. And if you would, would you let me close with a prayer for vocations Please. so that we can increase the number of religious in our world? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. O God, throughout the ages, you have called women and men to pursue lives of perfect charity through the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. In this 50th anniversary year of the Institute on Religious Life, we give you thanks for these courageous witnesses of faith and models of inspiration. Their pursuit of holy lives teaches us to make a more perfect offering of ourselves to you. Continue to enrich your church by calling forth sons and daughters who, having found the pearl of great price, treasure the kingdom of heaven above all things. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.